At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. February is Black History Month, and we believe it's important to honor, celebrate, and pass the mic to Black entrepreneurs and the support organizations that help empower them. Join us as we share the contributions and accomplishments of Black entrepreneurs and learn about their lived experience as founders across Canada. Stay tuned all month and look for a recap of these stories and a complete list of resources at the end of February on the Startup Canada blog. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Mark LaFleur. Building three businesses from the ground up has given Mark LaFleur a deep understanding of what it takes to succeed in today's business landscape. As co-founder and former CEO of True Local, he built a locally sourced meat subscription service into a business with $20 million in sales and 60 employees. After expanding the, the company across Canada and into the U.S., he successfully negotiated its $16.7 million acquisition, all of that within five years. Most recently, Mark is celebrating the launch of his first book with Forbes, True Founder, What No One Else Has the Guts to Teach You About Starting Your First Business, available everywhere today. And as one does, for fun, Mark is currently racing a Mercedes-AMG GT4 in Canada's professional sports car racing series, FEL Motorsports. Mark, welcome to the show. As one does. I love that little uh, throw in there at the end, but super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Um, you've got a great story to tell. You're telling it in, in, in the book, True Founder, which is just being published today as this show is broadcast. Um, you're a founder at heart. Can you take us back to the, the, the day you first found entrepreneurship or did it find you? Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a two-way street, right? So I didn't even realize that entrepreneurship or, you know, the idea of launching a startup was even an option until about second year university. Um, I was your typical high school kid that thought and pretty much was told that really the only options career-wise are go to school, get a degree or go to college, learn a trade. And you're either going to be, you know, a, a doctor, you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be an engineer, but it was really just 100% based off what you learned or what your degree was in. And I got into the university of Waterloo, which I always say is a funny story because it's such a prestigious university. But the only reason I got in there was because it was the only health program in the country that didn't need math 
because I'm just <laughs> absolutely brutal at math. So I, I got into this awesome university pretty much on this like loophole. Um, and what you know, you first year to do I was, with, with a health degree. So, um, up until the end of first year, I thought I was going to be a dentist because I heard that they made a, a lot of money and I thought it'd be an easy job. And then once I got my grades back from first year, I realized I was not going to be a dentist. So that was a, a one and done. Um, but the, the reality was, like I said, I, I wasn't a very good student in high school. And the one thing I did do well in though was exercise science, which in high school was kind of like that introduction to kinesiology and health and fitness. And so going off to university, it was okay, you know, if I am not going to be this amazing academic student, might as well do something I enjoy. And I figured because I went to school to play football, health just seemed to make sense. So between me wanting to be a dentist for a year and just enjoying the program, uh, the, UW, the UW health program made a lot of sense for me. So um, the good thing about UW though, is that UW has the co-op program. So the school is really focused on, on real world experience. And for that reason, you end up getting a lot of entrepreneurs and obviously the KW, the Kitchener Waterloo ecosystem is known for really being good to, to, to incubate and house and, and um, I guess just really conducive towards being an entrepreneur mm -hmm. because they have all of these different programs and all these different resources available. So I'm curious, how did that rub off on you as a, as, as a health student? Yeah. Um, well, it was in probably about third year where I had to start thinking, okay, well, I can't just think about going to the bar every weekend. I kind of got to get my life figured out. And I also now know that I'm not going to be a dentist. So what am I going to do? And that actually didn't hit me until third year. Um, and I'll never forget. Uh, I, there was a couple friends. There was a, uh, people that I knew that were building this app called uh, Pump It, I think it was. You know, Obviously, Kick was coming from the, the University of Waterloo ecosystem. And I didn't even know what these were. I was just like, oh, they're making apps. So what? Like, isn't that just a hobby? And I'll never forget when I heard that Snapchat got offered $3 billion by Facebook and turned it down. And that's kind of like the moment where I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not using my health degree. Like I'm, I'm going into this, this business world. And from the moment that I got introduced to entrepreneurship, which is like about third year, you know, around 2012 to how quickly I was able to dive in. That was the one unique thing about Waterloo is that, okay, now I realize that I like this business and this, this idea of launching a startup, but what do you do next? And being in that ecosystem in KW really helped kind of accelerate that curve. And how, how did you do that? Did you like get involved with the engineering department? Did you start going to uh, failure nights, uh, <laughs> meetups? I did go to failure nights. We had a lot of our own, but I did go to a lot of those nights where you pretty much just go on stage and talk about, you know, how badly you messed up. Yeah. But no, honestly, what ended up happening is I was always, I was just a stubborn student, right? And I thought I knew everything. I was a, a stubborn student who played football. I pretty much thought I had everything figured out in life and nobody <laughs> could tell me otherwise. And I knew all, right? So the thing that helped me wasn't that I had access to knowledge. It was that I had access to resources. So the University of Waterloo is great because, you know, every 10th kid is trying to start a company or every 10th kid is a software engineer or every 10th kid has an idea. So when we decided early on, the first business idea you know, we ever had was uh, an instant messaging app. And because we saw Snapchat, we were like, why well, don't create an instant messaging app where once the message is opened, it's deleted now. It wasn't a complete ripoff because at the time, uh, Snapchat was only doing video and mess uh, video and picture. It wasn't doing the messaging side yet. So we figured, look, why don't we do the texting version of that and we'll be you know millionaires by the summer and it'll be great. Obviously, that's not how it turned out. But the thing that it helped with was that 
when we decided, okay, step number one, we need to find someone to actually code this product. That was still difficult, but I feel it was a lot easier in the KW ecosystem than it would have been somewhere else. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Now, one of your themes in the book is how entrepreneurs are always encountering problems, just unpredictable problems. Now, as I understand it, uh, with uh, that instant messaging business, somebody deleted the client names. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, a nice way to put it. Uh, pretty much in my early days, I was in, nominated as the CEO of this little enterprise, which was just four friends that got together. None of us with a business background. We were actually all in health, knew nothing about coding, knew nothing about business. And uh, it got to the point where I was just that crazy, tyrannical leader. I was a young kid and I thought I knew everything. And it was all just about, okay, I need access and control over all the aspects of the business. Oh, no. Well, one, one thing I can tell you is whenever we did finally find someone to develop the website, um, I demanded access to the database. I think at the time we were using Parse. And a piece of advice for any future entrepreneurs here is that if you're non-technical, you do not need access to the database for any reason. And of course, one what day- What could I was possibly like, go wrong? Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what can go wrong. One day we pretty much ended up uh, up late one night and I just wanted to go through and just see the data. I wasn't even on there to do anything. I just liked that I could go onto it. And I was trying to delete one cell of something. Um, and of course, then that confirmation saying, you know, are you sure you want to delete popped up? I clicked yes. And it deleted all of our users. And at the time, once again, I'm non-technical, we didn't have a, a backup plan or there was no sort of uh, duplicate of the database or whatever in technical terms could be used to save it. And it was all gone completely that night. So we were about a year into it, give or take. And that was pretty much the end of my first startup. I was 23 at the time. Well, you get those out of you, out, out of you, out of the way quickly, right? <laughs> well, that's the hope. That's the always thing, right? I always uh, people look at kind of where we're at now, and and with the sixteen point seven million dollar acquisition, and they think it's all you know, sunshines and roses. And even though five years was a pretty quick time for when we started True Local, I always say my journey started way back with Tal, so it's more like eight years, um, just based on the fact that if we didn't fail the way that we failed with Tal, we probably and Tal was the instant messaging app. We probably wouldn't made it as far as we did with True Local because a lot of the things that I learned, especially about leadership, especially about how to manage a team, came from those early failures. So if I had taken that same naivety or just that same ignorance into True Local, I would have made the same mistakes um, that I made in Tell, and that probably would have tanked True Local at the same time. Well, let's talk about True Local. It's a really interesting company, a very different sort of thing. And because I just uh, read the book, I know that you started out as a, as, as a salesperson for a meat company before you started a, a, the business, True Local. And you had what I called the very best motivation for any entrepreneur going into their own business is that you already knew the business, but, but dumb managers didn't see the beauty of your idea. So tell us the story. Hey, your words, not mine. Um, <laughs> so bad, yeah, that, bad, bosses, much... bad bosses have created more entrepreneurs than all the government programs put together. Absolutely. And ironically, I say this one thing I learned from that moment when they were pretty much laughing us out of the room on this idea was that 
if anybody, if anybody comes to you in your organization that is very, very, very adamant about a business opportunity and they're self-starters and they're go-getters, whether you agree with it or not, give them the leeway to give it a shot. Because if you don't, who knows, they might become your biggest competitors. So that was actually a takeaway that to this day has served me very well. When normally there's somebody, let's say you think they're a bad culture fit, or you think that they're always just trying to do different things. And it's like, well, listen, maybe this person's onto something, give them a chance. So that's pretty much what happened. Um, I was doing door-to-door meat sales, which means I was pretty much peddling meat door-to-door. And I had this view that the product was amazing. They had a really, really great product. Like people were looking for locally raised products. They were tired of what was going on in the grocery stores. They wanted something a little bit better. Um, but the business model made no sense. And it was just sort of this epiphany that, look, there's a lot of really easy best practices that we can take from other industries in the e-com space. Like it's not rocket science and we're not reinventing the wheel, but if we can take those best practices and bring them into this this niche market that hasn't evolved for the past 15 years, once again, door-to-door direct sales, I think we can make a real run at it. And it was interesting because it placed us in a position where we were not trying to chase down the big mammoths in the space because there were companies, especially when you look at the meal kits, um, when you look at sort of the instant grocery delivery, these people were raising hundreds of millions of dollars. There was no point even trying to compete in that area. But it made sense and we found the niche in it, which was online meat. So over the course of five years, it was just this endless task of problem solving after problem solving after problem solving. I had experience in the product, understanding the product. And I had very, very, very early stage business experience from two failed startups. But by no means was I this you know, MBA graduate with this wealth of knowledge when it comes to building a company. It was just, we got really good at solving problems that came our way. And we didn't have the ego of, well, you know, this problem's beneath me or, or this idea that we had to just wear the hats that our titles gave us. It was, we're just professional problem solvers. And the better we can get at that, the faster we'll be able to move. And therefore, the better the business is going to be. That's so cool. In your book, you mentioned your three-part uh, formula for solving problems, like generic problems, because you're going to have a new problem every day. That's the only thing that's that you can be certain of in entrepreneurship. Can you share that with us in like 60 seconds? Yeah, the, the whole idea was to make it as general as possible because problem solving, it's very difficult to describe. It's kind of just like this intuition that you have. But if you were to break it down into something, I would always say that it's survey, triage, execute. So the idea that you were going to survey the problem, because a lot of people think they're solving um, uh, an issue, but it's actually not even really solving the problem at hand. They're just kind of doing make work. So for me, it's always been, okay, survey the actual issue of what's going on and write out every single possible solution that could come, uh, that, that could be used to deal with that problem. And whether they're good ideas, whether they're bad ideas, just write them all out, write every single one of them out and use your team. If you've got a co-founder, if you've got, uh, you know, uh, a few team members on your, on your, uh, on your team, then tap them in as well. Because at the end of the day, if you're a founder, your, re- your team are your best resources. Like they're the reasons you're, that the company is gonna be successful, you're gonna be successful, your, your customers are gonna be successful. So I see a lot of people try to problem solve on their own. So write out all of the possible solutions to the problem. And then you go into this triage mode where now it's, okay, start cutting out any of the ones that don't make sense due to, you know, Maybe you don't have the resources. Maybe there's legal or reputational risk, or maybe there's just some things that are not viable. Start cutting them out. And then arguably you'll be left with one final option. 
Uh, and the thing that I always try to tell people, especially early stage founders, is that the, the, the solution might not be ideal. Like it might not be this rosy solution where it's like, oh, of course we should do this. It's just that this is the only thing that you left, that you're left, that you can do to solve this problem. And as long as that solution is better than the problem, you do it, even if it's ideal or not. And we've been in that situation a lot where it's, okay, well, this is a shitty outcome, but we don't have a choice. This is the only option we have. Let's double down on it. And then execute is just full steam ahead on it. Don't deviate. Don't move around. Like you've surveyed the problem. You've triaged your best possible solution. Now just sprint full speed ahead towards actually executing on that. Great. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, I, I think that's a really, really good pattern to follow. I love the idea that you brought the word triage into entrepreneurship. I guess that relates to your health background. Uh, yeah, not really. Ironically, my uh, health background has not once been used, I don't think, in business. I think the one thing, of course, you go to university or post-secondary and you learn how to learn. Um, and because I was such a bad student, I really had to figure out how to how to survive. Like I was a C's get degrees kind of kid. So for me, it was a lot of problem solving just in how to get by. But the triage thing just kind of came from the idea that it's not necessarily going to be a good outcome. It's not that it's going to be this perfect solution. It's that what's the least worst and you can kind of tackle it in that way. It's working your way through all of the things, finding the ones that are least important. And then you settle on the one that, okay, this is actually the answer. And you do it through triaging the worst solution. So that was kind of where it came from. Right. So at True Local, your company grew by 60 employees in five years. You have this neat part in the book where you show the company Christmas cards. <laughs> you can see the staff growing and growing um, uh, picture by picture. Um, tell us what you learned at the, at, at, at the company about leadership, about building strong teams. Yeah, I think that when it comes to building strong teams, first of all, a lot of people, especially early founders, so if you're you know high school, university age, and this obviously translates across the board too, but I just find it here when you know you get young, hungry, you get egos. I came from sales, door to door sales, and it's really kind of like a cutthroat mentality where it's you want to be the best salesperson, you want to be number one on the leaderboards, um, and that works really, really well in that environment. If you're doing enterprise software sales, if you're doing something where it is kind of that like raw, raw mentality. Um, who's going to win this month? That's great. And it's good to be the A player and be the all-star. But the reality is, is that that does not translate at all to running a team or running a company. At the end of the day, once you get past that, let's say year one or, or the milestone where you're actually, you've got your nose above water and you can breathe, or you can, you can breathe um, then you're in a situation where now it's your job to work for your team. And the sooner you realize that, the better. And I think that that was something that it was good that it took, you know, I don't know how many years between the first two failed startups that I did. It was good that I went through those phases in those businesses. And it was good that I, at this company that I was at doing door-to-door -door meat sales, you know, I ended up being a manager there. Um, and you learn that early on that you got to get rid of that, that A player mentality and focus on, on developing your team. Because at the end of the day, as the company grows, those people that came in early on, they're more likely than not going to develop into leadership positions. They're the ones who are going to be as the company grows and you're just as a team dealing with general problems, 
you're going to start dealing with more specific problems and you're going to start developing departments within the company. And these are the people that are going to be bu- that building that out because they're going to be they're going to be better at solving those problems than you are because they're dealing with the day to day while you're still running the entirety of the business. So you've got to realize that enabling them, removing all of the barriers that are in their way, making sure that they have proper personal develop- development, not only for the skills that they need um, to do a good job, but also just to make sure that they're happy in life. At the end of the day, it is the truth, right? You know, you look at it, um, from the perspective of, you know, people, product profits, and that's something that has been said by a lot of different founders. And it's true. And I find that the ones that actually double down on that idea of making sure that you have a good culture and a good team, you'll realize that trickles down to your customers and it allows you to turn your customers from more of this, like, Hey, we're going to extract value from you to, Hey, we're all kind of in this together. You know, you're supporting the business. We're providing you a service. You're paying for that service, but we're actually creating a little bit more. And it's not just about extracting value from the customer. It's about creating a bit more of a community. And that only comes from the team. And that only comes from the culture that's on the team. And I think that when people talk about how that comes from the top, if you're not taking a back seat to make sure that your A players are your team members and not you, I think you'll be in a lot of trouble with that. And of course, I have a chapter kind of talking about that, what it's like a transition as a founder, because I think a lot of founders get stuck with that. And it's founders don't know when to transition. Like your job as a founder is obviously to always be one step ahead of the business. That's all you got to do. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have all the answers figured out. You just have to be one step ahead. And when your business starts growing quickly, like if you're doing your job well and you're starting to see traction, You've got to know when to transition your role as a founder and, you know, won't go down the rabbit hole on it, but it goes from the typical things, which are like working in the business, right? So when you're literally running the ads or packing the boxes or doing the sales calls or whatever it is to then the, the glory days that most founders think where it's now you're working on the business. And that's when you kind of come out of the trenches a little bit. And now you're starting to think rather than thinking day to day, you can start thinking week to week or month to month or quarter to quarter, but it doesn't end there. There's more transitions that happen. And one of the ones I talk about is how you eventually go from working in the business to working on the business to working out of the business. And that's when you've got a great team of people that are working in the business. And now you've got a great group of people that are working on the business, which is typically going to be your, your early managers. Now you have the ability to go and be the champion of your business externally. You're going to be doing interviews. You're going to be doing PR. You're going to be, you know, talking to investors, doing the whole shaking hands, kissing babies kind of thing. And that's just another stage of being a founder. It doesn't last forever, but it absolutely comes. And I find that some founders struggle with when to make the leap from those different phases of being a founder. So that was one of the biggest things that I took away from True Local was just this need to transition as a founder and how, once again, you can see it way more clearly when you're focusing on getting your team to transition as well from, hey, you're employee number three and you're helping us pack boxes to now, wow, you've actually developed into the director of consumer experience or you should now be the chief marketing officer. You taking those people along that journey and making it easier for them actually inherently makes you transition as a founder into those different stages of of what it's like to be a founder in an early startup. I'm just really struck by your eloquence on these issues. These are lessons that entrepreneurs often take decades to learn. And like you went through all this and figured it out in five years. I think that's really remarkable. So 
you know, congratulations on that. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. You know what? I think that's the one thing that business does really well, right? Like there are, you got to make an argument that founders, founders have chips on their shoulders and founders have egos, right? It's just the way it is. At the end of the day, if you want to go start a business, it's because you think you can do it better than anybody else. That's a certain type of individual. And because it's self-imposed, like nobody is forcing you to do this. <laughs> so I always say, I'm like, listen, the idea of work-life balance, you got to throw that out the window as a first time founder. And the reason is, is because if you're on your second or third business, no problem. Of course, take a step back, have work-life balance. If you're doing a nine to five that you're comfortable with, no issues on focusing on work-life balance. But if you're choosing to throw yourself into the gauntlet of being a first time founder, because you want to go and achieve something that is very, very, very difficult, but you see having this amazing reward, You've got to sacrifice everything the same way pro athletes or, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, PhD students or whatever it might be do. But where I'm going with this is that those types of individuals tend to do well under pressure and we almost kind of strive for it a little bit. It's kind of like this thing where the, if the challenge is the perfect distance from what I'm capable of doing um, and it's something that is just on that cusp of I don't think I can do it, but really deep down you can. That's what promotes growth. And I think that that's the one thing that as a founder, you get more than anywhere else. Like if your business is moving forward, you're always going to be trying to catch it. You're always going to be chasing it. It's always going to be one. It's always going to be putting pressure on you that forces you to be better. And I think that's why we, we, we age quickly. I always say as a, as a founder, you know, I've probably lived two lifetimes already because every day there's a challenge or a problem that I got to figure out or try to deal with. And that's, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. So we age quickly as, as founders. <laughs> that, 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 that's really well put too. I love it. Um, let's just zoom in on true local again. I mean, an online meat subscription service, you're taking frozen meat from various vendors, putting them in boxes and delivering them to customers. Um, that doesn't sound like a formula for fast growth. What, 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 what do you think uh, was the secret sauce, if I can use that term, um, that, that led to true growth's, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> to true locals' stunning growth? Honestly, it's, it's like the same like key to life, right? It's so many things. There's no silver bullet. I would say, like, let's just go ahead and give credit where credit's deserved. Um, look, luck is 51% of any business. There's, there's no questions about that. We were very fortunate um, just with the way things turned out. There was that. There was, uh, we were right time, right place. People were educating themselves more on what they were eating and the local food movement was growing. Um, and then really, honestly, what I can say is that we did really, really well because we did a really, really good job of building community. And to this day, you know, our, you know, the true, I'm, I'm no longer with true local, but their strongest customer base at the time when I was leaving was their power users. So the people that have been with true local for, you know, six plus boxes. And I think that's partly because of this idea of community building that we did very, very well. And once again, that stems from the fact that look, like we never got VC funding. You know, we, we were, we built a $20 million company off $940,000 of investment and that in the D to C food space is it's pretty good in terms of the money management side of things. So what ended up happening is that when we started the company, it was me and Greg, and then we hired uh, Irma, who was my girlfriend of five years at the time. She's my now wife and her brother, Alan. And then 
all of the other hires up until hire number 10 were all friends. So what that did is it created this kind of camaraderie and this sort of us against the world mentality, which made it so that we worked harder than we normally would have if it was just, you know, a random job. But what also happened is that because we never went through this ridiculous hyperscaling of let's go raise $5 million and hire 30 people a month, because we were hiring like two to three people a month, we were able to maintain our culture. Because we were just a bunch of friends working together, like we didn't have to think about what our culture was. We were just living it every single day because once again, it was just a bunch of friends figuring this out as we went. So when we brought more people in, people assimilated into our culture rather than it being a dilution when you go and hire a bunch of people. So day one, early on, we were just always really, really, really appreciative of every customer we got. And that's not to be cheesy. It's just that we knew that we had no idea what we were doing. And so anytime someone would give us a chance, we just went out of our way, whether it was a personal email, phone call, same with the Christmas cards. Like we talk about it in the book and we made the commitment early on to send out a Christmas card to every single person who ordered a box, not just active customers. And I say it in the book too, where I'm like, if I had known how fast we were going to grow, I probably wouldn't have made that commitment, but we did it every single year and they're still doing it now. So think, and like that's handwritten and we mail it out. So and, just and think made like all that. your employees send them out, right? I mean, that's a yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it was this joke where in the early days it was like four of us, then it was ten of us, then it was twenty of us. But then by the end, and we're sending out like tens of thousands of these cards, we would actually hire people in like October and be like, "Hey, welcome to the team. You know, this is where you're going to be working. Here are your team members. Oh, by the way, here's five hundred cards that we need you to write. Um, welcome to True Local. <laughs> like that was that was how it went. So. It was, that was really what it was like that sort of culture absolutely, you know, trickled down to the customers. And I think that that's why they stuck with this the way they did. And I think that was part of why we were successful. But it it seems to me that you, I don't want to use the word stumbled, but uh, because that implies ineptitude or something, but, but you, 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 you managed to start out in an area in, in, in a, in a little niche sector that hadn't really been automated or digitized. Amazon isn't curating meat for me. Um, the, the, the grocery stores were very slow getting into online foods. So speak, speak to me just a little bit about, about that niche that you had that you found. Yeah, well, it was just one of those things where once again, we, we pretty much found that D2C food was becoming a thing. There was a million and one case studies on how to use proper e-com practices to grow a business online. And all we did that was uh, unique was we took it, we brought it into a niche industry, which was online meat sales. But then how we grew our communities, we did it niche by niche by niche. I think a lot of people right out the gate, they want to go mainstream. They You see it all the time with founders. Oh, our customers are 18 to 65 year old male and female. Okay, well, what, what do you, what, who are you actually servicing? Like, I would much rather hear, like, if there's a company that we're thinking about investing in, I would much rather hear someone be like, oh, we service, you know, people aged 35 to 40 and be very specific on it and cater a product directly to them. Anyway, where I'm going with this is that everyone comes out and they try to be mainstream, which ends up meaning that they don't do anything for anybody and they don't build that community. They don't build that sense of camaraderie or, or that sense of, um, I, know that this company is building for me. So what we did is early on, we found uh, CrossFit. 
And CrossFit at the time, everybody knows CrossFit, right? The number one thing about CrossFit people is they love talking about CrossFit. Well, they also love talking about meat subscriptions as long as they like the company. So we found that we were getting this huge influx of customers from the CrossFit community. So we doubled down on it. We started going into gyms and doing pop-up shops every single night. We would just go to the whatever gym was going on and they would start classes at five to nine. And we would just be there from five to nine, just sampling product, talking to the people. And that doubling down and going very specific to that and building products and recipes and content around that community made it grow like wildfire. And then what ends up happening from there is that once you've become the player in that space, now what you can do is you can look at adjacent spaces. So ones that are different, but kind of touch your space. So as an example, the keto community, right in 28, uh, probably 2017, that was blowing up and it was very easy to jump from CrossFit into keto. And what you start seeing is that when you choose a niche market and you go after it, and then you go after other niche markets that are adjacent to it in a way that doesn't alienate the previous market, eventually, if you keep doing that, you end up being mainstream because now you've touched all of these different industries and now you're catering to all these different individuals and that's how you get a mainstream brand. And I use the example, like, let's talk about uh, like a rapper. Like if you're a musician, you're a music artist and you're a rapper, you are going to cater to your town. You have to, you need to cater to your own town. And then what you're going to do is you're going to cater to your own town and your own genre. If you come out the gate and try to be mainstream, nobody cares about you. The only way things become mainstream is when you make them mainstream and you make them mainstream by bringing your audience with you already. That's my opinion on it. And I think it's very similar in business where if you try to come out the gate and be everything to everybody, you're nothing to nobody. Whereas if you go from niche to niche to niche, giving those people exactly what they want, as you start to broaden the your 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 market size, as you start to broaden your audience, those previous niches that you did a good job in are gonna come with you. So you inherently become mainstream by tackling things niche by niche by niche. So it's a generalization, but it worked well for True Local. You know, it went from zero to twenty million in, in five years. So that was that's that's how we did it. Fabulous, fabulous. Um, you were named Canada's 14th top growing company by the report on business magazine. You, 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 you got your picture on the cover of ROB magazine. Um, and someone comes along and buys the company. Can you tell us a little bit about the, that experience? Yeah, well, that was crazy. So we did, we were so excited. We always wanted to, uh, once again, as a kid that, you know, came from nothing, kind of grew up with holes in my shoes, sort of thing, small town. Um, I'm a big trophy guy, say whatever you want about it. But like, if I earned a trophy, like I'm, I want that trophy, give me my trophy, even if it's like <laughs> five bucks. So of course the idea of being in a magazine period is just, it's just a personal thing for me that, you know, coming from nothing, it's like, wow, this is such a big win. Um, so I know that we'd always wanted to be on that, you know, the Globe and Mail report on business. Uh, we really wanted to be featured on that list of Canada's top 400 growing companies. And little did we know that we got number 14th, which we were super proud of uh, to be Canada's 14th top growing company. They did an interview and they do interviews for maybe, let's say, 10 of the businesses. So we were once again, we're like, wow, we made it on the list. And then, wow, they are going to come interview us. We didn't know that we had made the cover. And it was when the box showed up and we opened it and like my face is on the cover. And we're just like looking at each other and we're like, did they send us like some sort of, you know, I don't know, parody copy just as like a thank you for being in it. And then the messages start pouring in like, yo, you're like, you guys are on the cover of the Globe and Mail. And it was just like, it was, it was the, the Globe Mail's report on business. It was just a sick experience. So that was the same year that we got, a, uh, 
yeah, I think that was that would have been 2020. So it would have been the same year, I believe, that we got acquired. Um, or maybe it was the year after. Either way, long story short, we had a series of wins throughout the course of that 12-month period. Um, obviously, the acquisition for us. Look, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, we, we did two failed startups before starting True Local. And I couldn't get any funding. Um, everybody would kind of laugh me out the room in the early days as they should, to be clear. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm like, Oh, so hard done by like, I would walk into investor meetings with like a one pager that says like, give me money. We build business. Like it was just not like, we just didn't have any background in it. Right. But it was frustrating because you spend so much time trying to convince people that you're the one rather than building. So I kind of got this chip on my shoulder of, we need to go do the whole damn thing. Like, let's just go do the thing. That way we can prove to everybody that we are capable of spotting an opportunity, developing a brand, growing a team, expanding across the country, going international, uh, and eventually going through and, and having that big win of the acquisition. So um, we were always you know, ears to the ground looking and, and, and sitting on the background looking for opportunities to potentially be acquired. And we crossed over into profitability, which once again, as a D2C food company is sort of this, this, uh, this holy grail. And once that happened, you know, the process didn't really take too long in terms of finding potential people to come to the table. So it was this amazing experience. It was a great win for everybody involved. And I always say that the number one thing for me that was most exciting, and I think the thing that we're most proud of is that the same 10 people that we started the company with were with us when the company sold. And that to me is, yeah, yeah that to me is kind of more important than, than everything else. Cause you know, at the end of the day, we did it our way and we did it, we did it right by our team, you know, from that. 2016 to 2020 period, it was, it was, you know, it was a special time. Wow. And yet in the book, you describe yourself as the kid that nobody thought would make it. So just tell me a little bit more about this. How did the kid nobody thought would make it come to be so savvy and articulate and, and, and learning from their mistakes and, and dreaming big? Yeah, I think I think all that came from because I was the kid that nobody thought would make it. Like I was a horrible student um, in high school. I was pretty much failing out all of my classes up until grade ten. Um, I was in detention all the time. I was suspended multiple times per year. I was probably one day away from being absolutely expelled slash dropping out of high school um, in grade ten, and uh, it was really frustrating because. Everybody thought I was dumb, right? Other than my mom and my dad, uh, all my teachers in the early days, they they really didn't think there was anything going on there. And that's not their fault. I was just massively disruptive in the bad way. Um, I just had a massive chip on my shoulder. You know, people didn't like me, so then I didn't like them. But the thing that was frustrating is that they all thought I couldn't do the work. And that was where the frustration came from because it's like, it's not that I can't do it. It's that I don't care about what you're trying to teach me. And I talk about this a lot where it's like, I feel like there's a lot of kids that are misunderstood these days and they're, they're pretty much counted out because they're not applying themselves. And it's like, how can you judge someone when they aren't applying themselves? Just because they choose not to do the things you want them to do doesn't mean they're not talented. So for me early on, it just kind of built up this big chip on my shoulder. And eventually, long story short, because this is a, a long story, I do go into it in the book. But um, in grade 11, I found football. Football uh, became my purpose. Like it was everything that mattered to me. And what ended up happening was that I realized if I wanted to continue playing football, I needed to go to university because there was no real competitive college football. Now, as a kid who has pretty much failed all of his classes, that was a really, really big uphill battle. But because I had this like dream and this purpose and it mattered so much, 
it gave me the motivation to just do the things I needed to do to achieve that goal, which was turn my marks around, get fit. You know, I, I literally was this little fat kid with women's glasses and an Afro and it was a disaster. And I turned all that around. And the one thing I will say is that a lot of the people that counted me out, especially a lot of the teachers, when they saw me turn my stuff around, they started supporting it. Um, and I, I always give a huge shout out to Holy Trinity and the teachers there because they, without them, I wouldn't have made it. But where I'm going with this is that I've always used this thing, like this chip on my shoulder has always been my strongest form of motivation. Like if you really want to get me going, please just count me out. Like if you want to count me out, that gives me fuel for like a year. So actually it kind of helps me. So if anybody out there doesn't think that we can do this next thing or whatever we decide to go down, please let me know. So that way I can, I can bank that. But I think a lot of founders are in that boat. Like we've all got something to prove, whether it be from our childhoods, whether it be from today, maybe it's to prove someone wrong. Maybe it's to prove yourself wrong, but that chip on your shoulder is a really, really strong motivator. And it's great. You know, I, you know, did the thing that I said I wanted to do before the age of 30, but now it's like, okay, well, what's next? You know, I'm 32 now and uh, I'm very excited to see where that leads me to where I'm when I'm 40. But yeah, I would just say that when you get counted out a lot, it's really easy to do amazing things because, you know, last thing you want to do is, is let them be right. Wow. What a story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's talk about what you're doing now. In 2020, you created the True Local Equal Opportunity Grant to open doors for Black founders. Tell us about what motivated you to create this grant and what can you tell us about some of the founders that you're working with? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting one. So pretty much whenever the, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, um, I actually got called out. Um, well, I got, I got called out fairly often, but this one meant something to me because we obviously, I've never looked internally at true local at diversity because we've always had a ton of diversity and I'm a black CEO. So it never felt like it was something that we had to look at or dive into. So I always felt we were good in that category, but also because I was this obsessed founder, like my purpose was to build this company. I'm sure a lot of founders can relate, but nothing else matters. Like you were not focused on anything else. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. You're focusing on your business. And with George Floyd and with the whole BLM thing, I was kind of in the same boat. Like I knew what was happening, but I wasn't giving it the the time or the consideration that it, it needed. And it was two of our, uh, our team members, um, Aisha and Ola, that came to me. And obviously, so there are two black women and they came to me and they're like, what are you doing about this? Like you have a platform, like you have the ability to do something here. If you say something, people will listen to you. You have this company that has this customer base. You can take a position and a stand on it. And it just kind of really hit me where I've never been one to kind of hold punches. So it was never a situation where, oh, let's just be neutral. Um, and if you look back through true local history, you'll see we've always taken a position on things. And if people don't like that, that's totally fine. But we feel very strongly in certain areas. So we'll take a position on it. So early on, it was, you're absolutely right. We need to do something about this. And it just kind of hit me like a rock. So I was like, okay, what can we do that makes a difference? And I thought that education, first of all, is one of the most important things. So how can we educate people on what's going on? So um, Aisha and Ola got together this comprehensive list just on um, racism, just on systemic injustice, all these types of things that were relevant at the time. And we put it on a website. And then for me, there's two things that I really think deeply about when it comes to being a founder and how to get more people involved in entrepreneurship, especially minorities. And to me, it was exposure. So I never even knew that business was an option as a kid. 
you know, as a black kid, if I wanted to be the ultimate version of myself, which I didn't even think I could be in high school, but let's just say I did, I was like, what, am I going to be a rapper or an athlete? That's it. Like I, there was nobody else that was black, that was prominent in different industries. And I look at it as the perspective of if I had known that that was an option for me, maybe I would have dove into it sooner. So to me, it's always been about exposure. How much can we expose? And then also enabling people that have actually found that. So to me, the business grant was the best way that we could do that because now it was, hey, listen, we will award this to minority founders um, that have businesses that are already on the go. And the idea is that we will help you on your way with this grant. And I think that that's the best gift you could give. And that was a way of giving back. Like if this whole movement was about equality and this whole movement was about injustice and this and that, like we're not going to play in the arena that we don't know, but I know business. So if I can go and help black founders, then that's my way of giving back. So it was awesome. We actually, uh, we, we put together $10,000 for two business grants that we were going to award. And then one of our partners, um, actually shipper B saw what we were doing and saying, Hey, can we, can we match that? So we ended up with four, and the craziest thing happened. So four, we had four $5,000 business grants. So the, the craziest thing that ended up happening is we ended up, uh, one of the winners, the name is Brittany. She runs O Foods and uh, just amazing, absolute rock star entrepreneur, really young and was just building this company. And we felt that if she had a chance, she could actually make it. And she was one of the ones. Well, fast forward like two years, and I'm doing this panel um, for a, an entrepreneur group in Guelph. And who's on my panel with me? Well, it's Brittany. And she was telling me about how that grant helped her get to where she's at now because it kind of gave her that runway. And now they're absolutely crushing it. Like they're, they're, they've grown significantly. She's doing speaking now. And that was like everything that we wanted. Because of course, when you do these grants, you're going to choose people, but you don't know what's going to happen, right? You're pretty much out signing a check and you hope you chose correctly. But to see her actually thriving on that, it was honestly amazing. And that's actually what led to, so for the book, to promote the book, almost did the same thing. Um, obviously, it wasn't, um, it wasn't focused just on minorities. This one is focused on first-time founders, period. And the reason I did that is because I think that first-time founders are their own group that like deal with massive struggle and are underserved and underrepresented in general. And for me, it was, okay, listen, we do a good job of helping people along their way. So to help promote the book, why don't we get together with all of these amazing agencies? Because these agencies or founders really could use a lot of help on the agency side of things. So first of all, which agencies to use? And second of all, a lot of them want to use agencies, but they don't have the money or the funding to get it going. But if they did, it would help their business a lot. So for the book, we did the, uh, the true founder, sorry, the uh, ultimate first time founder business grant where all you got to do is the same thing as the the grant we did with True Local, where you submit a two minute video pitch, and if you're selected, then uh, you're going to get over fifty thousand dollars in uh, uh, credits towards these agencies to help grow your business. So that's kind of just been like a tale to take, I guess. You know, in our in our lives has been, you know, if we if we're doing awesome things and we're in a, a fortunate position, um, why not just try to give back? And so far, the one thing that's worked for us is these grants. It's been really good. Fabulous. And you personally are also doing uh, investing in startups. You call yourself a value-added investor. Can you just uh, briefly tell us a little bit about the work you're doing there? Yeah, look, um, I just think that when you're a founder, you can add perspective and help in a way that 
professional investors can't. And I think that's one of the biggest things. And, you know, I'm really excited about some of the investments. Um, you know, one of them I always love to talk about is CoGuard, um, which is uh, Nadia and Albert out of Waterloo, absolute rock star founders, um, married couple. Uh, they're in an industry they're doing with cybersecurity. I have no experience in cybersecurity. However, those early days of starting a company and navigating just the things you, like you don't know what you don't know. And I feel like as a founder who's been through it, I can kind of help navigate some of that to, to shorten that time frame a little bit, even everything all the way through to like, when does it make sense to raise money and from who all the way through to, you know, simple things like, well, how do we structure a shareholders agreement? Like these are things that as a founder who's been through it, you think it's really easy, but it could take new founders, like first time founders months to figure this stuff out. So I think that's it too. Um, and I just feel like, you know, there's nothing better than being, someone who's made it and investing in founders that you kind of see in your shoes just a few years before. So that's kind of the biggest thing I always tell people. I'm like, listen, like I love investing in founders. I think the biggest thing that you're going to get or that, you know, you're going to get with me is that someone who understands. Um, and then of course, just the connections. I think that there aren't that, that many people that have exited in Canada. It's a small group of uh, people and luckily we keep the networks tight. So when it comes to introductions, um, that's probably one of the most valuable things. So I'm excited. I enjoy it. Um, it's something that, uh, for me, I, uh, there's a personal, I guess like, um, just a personal excitement on like, okay, let's place a bet on this person. And did you bet? Right. And then number two is it just kind of keeps me sharp, right? Like I've been on the sidelines for two years and I think that being around founders and, and helping them, um, and trying to coach them through, I learn just as much from them a lot of the time than they learn from me. So that's it's been always, good. Yeah, that's always been my mantra around mentorship. The mentors, the dirty secret is they learn just as much <laughs> from the people they work with as the clients do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so tell us, Mark Lafleur, what's next? You mentioned being on the sidelines. Was there a non-compete that's about to expire or? Yeah, well, pretty much uh, I say sidelines, but the idea was that once the company sold, I was going to stay on for two years to help transition. Um, so luckily we've got, we had an amazing CEO succession plan in place. Uh, the COO who came from the US actually, absolute rock star, um, but just wanted to make sure that things were smooth as we were doing the handoff. Um, so up until then, it was a two-year contract, which just actually ended uh, this in December. So December thirty, uh, December thirty-first, twenty twenty-two, and I'm officially off contract. So right now, um, biggest thing in my life is obviously this book. I'm really excited about it. Um, it's the book that I wish I had when I was starting True Local, or even the book I had when I was three years into True Local and just kind of living in the trenches. So just want to try to get this in the hands of as many founders as possible. Um, just kind of share my knowledge and, and hopefully give people something they can read that they can relate to. And then obviously racing, you know, right now is, is something that I'm, I'm deeply enjoying. Um, I think the beautiful thing about being an exited founder is that um, you can go from the perspective of your first uh, startup where you have to give absolutely every single aspect of yourself to like everything, like you're missing holidays and this whole work-life balance thing goes out the window. When you come out the other side of that, you there's a little bit more room to do the things that make you happy and mm -hmm. do the things that make it so that you can do the long haul again. Because for me, the one thing that I know definitively is that I want to do something for 10 years at least. With True Local, there was always kind of like this early sort of five-year time horizon. Let's build to sell. This is kind of the game. Like, let's do that. And I think that that's the case for a lot of Canadian entrepreneurs, as it should be, right? Everybody wants to get that check. Like, everybody wants to build something and have financial freedom. But the thing with that is that it limits how big you can actually make something. Like, when you're building to sell and you think, okay, well, 
maybe, you know, everybody thinks one year, but let's be clear, it's <laughs> start thinking more like five, right? And so they think five on the upper scale, you can only build something so big when you think that you're going to start looking to exit around five years. So for me with what's next, we did a $20 million company. I want to build something for 10 years. Um, I want to build something that is now, like I said, I'm 32 and I want to build something that I can look back on and, and sort of hang my hat on. If I look at true local as being the sort of the, the sandbox, the, the, place to learn and learn how to build a team and learn the type of people you want to work with. This next business that I want to get into is something that I want to actually have an impact. And that's uh, without being, I guess, too, too cryptic. I, I really think there's some opportunities in uh, the way humans communicate. I think the biggest threat to society right now is our breakdown in communication. Like we can't have a conversation one, with one another anymore without it becoming hyper-polarized. And I think that that is actually the single biggest threat that we're facing. And I think I got a couple ideas on how we can tackle that. So that's going to be what's next for me. Interesting. Um, that gives me a chance to mention how much I loved one of your chapter titles where you said, if you can't communicate, you can't lead. So it's interesting that, you know, I know that's a different type of communication probably than what you're talking about going into. But uh, uh, to me, it, it, it is a fundamental skill, not just for entrepreneurs, but for everyone in general to have the best life they can. So um, terrific that you're looking at that space and I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Any final thoughts, Mark, or a piece of advice for your community and specifically for black founders? Well, just, yeah, just founders, all founders. I think the biggest thing to understand is that, you know, we've always been criticized for this idea of work-life balance. And I always want to bring this back because this whole book is once again, this isn't like a business executive or an MBA that wrote a business book that, you follow and it's like, okay, there's a couple tips and tricks here, but you don't relate to me at all. Um, I think that right now the biggest tragedy for founders is that these are people that are chasing their dreams. These are people that have decided to sacrifice everything else in their lives. Like nobody forced them to do this. They're choosing to do it. And what we do is we break them down. We say, you know, you work too much. You're, you know, why can't you just, you know, why is it money that makes you happy? Why do you have to chase this goal? Yet in every other space, in everything else, like I was saying before, if you're a pro athlete and you don't get a summer job because you're working on your shot or you know, you're know uh, a billboard artist and you spend every dollar you have going in the studio, it's this amazing sort of congratulations. It's this glory story. But when it's a founder doing it, it's like you work too much and you need to get work-life balance. So the last thing I just want to leave is that, look, as a founder, it's okay to put every single thing you have into your business. You know yourself better than anybody. You know when to stop. You know when to keep pushing. And until you make that decision, don't let anybody else make you feel like you're overworking or that what you're doing is stupid and you need to take a break. Like that to me is if I could just leave one message with founders, like it's okay to be crazy and obsessive about your business. It's your baby. It's your dream. So if you're not going to be crazy obsessive over that, what are you going to be crazy obsessive over? All right. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Mark LaFleur, the founder of True Local the author of True Founder, What No One Else Has the Guts to Teach You About Starting Your First Business. Uh, thank you, Mark, for the show today, for all the learnings that you've, uh, the, the bruises you've suffered in order to learn and the, the, the lessons that you're now sharing with other entrepreneurs. We're thrilled to have you as a role model in this ecosystem, and we'll be sure to talk again. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.